The Science Inside Podcast. You're listening to The Science Inside, bringing you science around major news events. Hello, everybody listening out there. You're listening to The Science Inside, where we look at science around news stories. And I'm Lebohang Madisha. Joining me is... Bridget uh, Lepere. This week I'm holding down forts and Alna is currently away, unfortunately, because she's a bit ill, but she'll definitely be back next week. So today on the show, we look at allergies and we try to find out how informed we are as a nation. Allergies, particularly in food, actually affect a big chunk of South Africa and its population. We took it upon ourselves to better educate not only ourselves, but our listeners about allergies. It turns out that dining out can prove to be a difficult experience for people with with food allergies because it seems some people, especially in the food industry, are not fully aware of the dangers associated with allergies. Now, allergy rates are on the rise throughout the world. And really, restaurants and other eateries ought to do a better job in food preparation and ensuring they provide allergen-free meals. Now, you may be wondering why this interest in this topic, right? But it was sparked by media reports last week after an actress and broadcaster, Rilebukhile uh, Maboja, was rushed to hospital following an anaphylactic attack caused by nuts which were found in her salad dressing at a popular restaurant. She took to Twitter detailing her horrific ordeal in a thread saying that uh, she had repeatedly asked the restaurant staff and chef about ingredients in her meal to which they responded there were no nuts in her food. But alas on that very day she almost lost her life. Then we go into our unscience where we find out how to to unboil rather an egg. Now you don't want to miss that. And later on, we look at our scientists behind the science, Dr. Pepe Lengube. And before we get into all of that, of course, we still have our news. Don't forget, you can catch us on our social media and share your stories with us at Facebook. You can find us at VowFM. And you can tweet us at VAFM, hashtag Science Inside, or you can send your stories to us via our WhatsApp line at 084-078-4912. Next up, we have the news. This week's Science Headline. Okay, so our story is about Ecuador's indigenous Waroni people who demand for an oil drilling free territory. Now, on Wednesday, 18 Waroni communities launched an international petition requesting that the world sign uh, to demand their home in southeastern Amazon remains an oil drilling free zone. Now, the president, Lenin Moreno, opened up the southeastern, for, the southeastern Amazon for bidding to the oil, sorry, excuse me, for bidding to oil and natural gas industries in... Um, plans to improve southeastern the southeastern region's economy he did this to boost the economy of the area but the area has less than 20 years of oil reserves remaining several oil companies from around the world have already sent their signatures and government is expecting to generate about 800 million dollars once contracts are finalized this year This poses a threat, though, to the people of the Amazon as it results in them being displaced. But 
it also poses a threat to one of the most biodiverse regions in the planet. And even though oil drilling may expand the region's economy, it is worth potentially, is it really worth uh, losing a rainforest region and putting people's lives at risk? No, I don't think so, uh, Lebel. I really don't think so because no amount of oil is can amount to people's lives and the general ecosystem and the amazon does help to stabilize the earth's climate in addition the rainforest absorbs a large amount of carbon dioxide reducing the overall effects of worldwide worldwide climate change but then can you tell me what are the other effects are we looking at here okay now for the people of the amazon Oil exploration has meant deforestation, dangerous toxins being pumped into the environment, and violence, actually. In addition, oil exploration means that there will be oil spills. This is one of the effects that aren't explored very often, right? And due to oil oil spills, people in the surrounding region are almost always in near contact with oil and waste products. Oh my goodness. So what does this mean for people's health? Okay, now, according to studies that were looked at a couple of times, they looked at the self-reported symptoms and biomarkers, biomarkers, excuse me, that people reported. And people who came in contact with oil or gas spills reported the following symptoms. Respiratory problems, irritation of the eyes and skin, and neurological effects such as headaches and dizziness, and traumatic symptoms such as pain. That's not good. Are there any other factors that make these conditions even worse? Actually, Bridget, yes, there are. These symptoms are related to how much and how often individuals are exposed to the oil or gas spills. But for the people of the Amazon, this is a very common thing. So they are likely to suffer from these effects. So what about the biomarkers you you mentioned earlier on? Okay, um, unfortunately... Uh, looking at the biomarkers, studies have revealed that there are irreversible harms that are happening to human beings when they're exposed to oil or gas spills. The effects may include damage of l- to the lungs, liver damage, decreased immunity, increased cancer risks, reproductive damage, and high levels of toxic hydrocarbons and heavy metals. A study also looked at the people's, um, the people in the Amazon. And it showed that men who cleaned up the spills when there were oil spills in the Amazon had twice as much mercury in their urine as those who were not involved in the cleanup. Now, pipe raptures or pit overflows also mean that people in the region are exposed to mercury through their water, the fish they eat and the air they even breathe. Okay, so was this a general study or is this related to the particular oil spills that you mentioned earlier? Uh, The study looked at areas where there were oil spills happening regularly. Okay, so what can we do about this? Okay, firstly, we could sign the petition that the people of Ecuador launched and we could reduce our oil demands as individuals. Now you may be wondering how we can actually do that. We can take public transport, we can eat local foods, and we can become vegetarians. This way we'll reduce the rate of agricultural processes, processes rather, 
required to make our meats and to drive our cars and all the machinery. So less oil is needed for the machinery, less oil needed to be drilled out of the Amazon. Hmm. Well, I still stick to my guns. We don't really have to, you know, put the Amazon at risk just so that we can drill more oil. I mean, come on. Of course, because the Amazon is pumping out a lot of our oxygen. So if we kill the Amazon, we're basically killing ourselves. Definitely. Oh, well, in my story today, we are talking about ants who are really clever because they take detours to arrive at their destination quicker. Can you imagine? So imagine taking a detour thinking it will or may take you longer to arrive at your destination only to find out that you have actually beat the time it would have taken you had you used a familiar route. Okay, that sounds impossible. Yeah, I know many people would say that, but not for the Matebele ends. They take detours to travel faster than their competitors back to their, their nests. That's so unlikely. I wonder why. Exactly. These ants do not always take the shortest routes when they are in a hurry. Their navigation systems make them take detours that seem free of competitors and thus allowing them to speed up their journey, giving them an, advanti- an advantage over other ants. Okay, I, I'm not really convinced. Hey, please just enlighten me a little bit more. Oh, well. The termites are Matebele ants' favorite foods, and these ants prey on these organisms and raid their natural habitats. Then they will, then they will carry them back to their nests where they can enjoy them and eat them. Uh, but before they raid any of these um, habitats, the ants send out scouts to look for termites at their habitats. Habitats, uh, pardon me. Once they have seen them, scouts return to their nests to call upon the other members of the family. And on their way back, they rediscover their navigation uh, routes to use as a way to hurry back to their nests with food. These routes are likely to be the quickest rather than the shortest uh, back to the nest. Okay, that sounds surreal. How could this be the case? Well, if they if their way back passes through a grassy area, they would prefer taking detours through open fields that would enable them to double their pace and it seems to be working out for them. Oh, wow, they seem just too clever for being such small animals. Yes, that's very true. Unlike other ant species, their navigation skills seem to be much more complex. Yep, and that makes sense. You should never, ever judge a book by its cover. I agree with you on that one. (laughs) And actually, the decision of which way to take is actually determined by individual ants that tend to lead the whole pack and not a collective uh, group. Oh, wow. So that explains how quickly they bite and run off in like two seconds. Yeah, just in a flash like that. (laughs) And, well, this story can be found on the Science Daily website. And up next, researchers reveal that there is a rise in food allergies in South Africa. And after the break, we we look at this topic and find out what exactly could be causing this hike in all sorts of immune-related illnesses, such as asthma, eczema, and other allergies. Find out more after the break. Stay curious. Stay informed. Stay on the Science Inside. Welcome back. You're still listening to the Science Inside, and I'm Levo Madisha. Remember, you can find us on Facebook 
and Twitter as VAFM hashtag Science Inside. As I mentioned earlier, we're tackling al- allergies this week and our producer Bridget Lepere has the inside scoop on this topic. Now, without wasting any more time, let's get into it. Allergy diseases are said to be on the increase in lower and middle class income countries and about 30% of South Africans will suffer from some allergic disease during their lifetime. Almost half of allergy sufferers are said to be children. Allergic diseases are the most common chronic diseases in childhood and their effects on one's quality of life are strikingly high and can be fatal. Dr. Claudia Gray, an allergist and director at the Allergy Foundation, has this to say. So an allergy is an unusual response of the body to something that really should be harmless to the majority of the population. And when we talk about allergies, we can't sort of say what is the most common allergy in South Africa because allergy is such a vast spectrum of diseases. It covers asthma, eczema, food allergies, just as one aspect. It covers allergic rhinitis, which is navel allergies. It covers drug allergy. So there's a huge variation in the presentation of allergies. My name is Wanda, and I realized that I was allergic to pepper when I was a little child in primary school. I didn't know that I was allergic. I just knew that whenever I ate anything that had spices, I would get sick. But the family didn't take it seriously, and then I continued eating. And there was a point where I was taken to Louis Pasteur private hospital, and then I was told that I was allergic to anything with spices, mostly pepper. And then it wasn't that very serious when I was a child. But when I grew up, just a little bit of pepper would make my skin itch like I have a thousand needles pinching me. And it got to a point where it started to get irritating. Like if I eat anything with pepper, my face would burn up and swell up. And if I ignore the symptoms, it would even get to a point where it starts to swell like I have blisters on my face. It takes time to recover. As soon as you start to see that this thing is bad for you, you eat everything else that your body accepts because there's no cure for that. If I eat something and there's pepper in it and I've already eaten it, I will stop because sometimes even the quantity really matters. If you eat little, then you have little effect. It takes like a week to heal. When your face bends up, your skin peels off then you have redness on your face and then the swelling will take at least two days to calm down. And the places where your skin is peeled, they will have to recover normally. It's like a wound. It won't just disappear because the allergic reactions have stopped. You may be wondering, what are the most common allergies in South Africa? According to Dr. Gray, cow's milk, eggs and various nuts are at the top of the food group and in adults we see a decrease in these food groups because many children tend to outgrow these common allergies whilst adults tend to develop allergies in seafood or nuts. Name is Mpo from Hammersklau, currently residing in Joburg. I have two allergies. I'm allergic to alu and allergic to that. I tried to apply aloe on my face and I got some rash. And then we went to the doctor to find out what's happening with me. Then I showed them the lotion that I was applying. 
They ran some tests and they found out that I'm allergic to olive. I can't even drink anything olive-related. It affects my entire body. The obvious red eyes, itchiness, headaches. I don't remember the year, but I had blisters all over my body. It started maybe around three-ish and ended up around six. It was really bad. I mean, I'm dark-skinned, but the blisters were red. If I'm next to warm water, I would pour myself with some warm water or something. If I'm nowhere near water or anything, I just have to stack it up. But nowadays, allergics, medication, there's lotion, there's pills. You apply it and uh, the irritation goes away. Asthma forms part of the spectrum of allergic diseases. And asthma is a reactivity of your chest. Your chest closes up in response to irritants or colds or exercise and sometimes to allergens such as grass or house dust So you are quite right, not all asthmatics have classical allergies, but many do. And asthma is in the realm of what the allergist treats. So when we take a history for is the family allergic or atopic is the nice word that you used, the questions we ask are, is there anyone with asthma? Is there anyone with eczema? Is there anyone with food allergies? And is there anyone with allergic rhinitis? So those are our main groups. And if your first degree relative, so your mother, your father, or a sibling has any of those allergies, yes, the offspring has a much greater chance of developing some kind of allergic manifestation. So that's either asthma or hay fever or food allergies or eczema. That is an allergy that is recently discovered. How we discovered it, I was at my grandmother's and we were all cleaning her house and uh, for some reason I started singing and sneezing I thought maybe just flu but then it became so serious I had to be taken to the doctor because I couldn't stop sneezing and my back was hurting that really gets me to flu within minutes so I try to stay away from that I always have my do-rag in my bag but it's not as bad as the other one. Allergies cause an acute reaction, causing the person who's been exposed to the allergen to break out in hives, diarrhea or stomach cramps. And in very extreme cases, the person may experience anaphylaxis, a case where the allergy sufferer suffocates due to the allergen. But what about eczema? What is its association with an allergic reaction? Dr. Gray explains. Eczema is completely different. Eczema is a chronic skin condition. So there's mostly a little rash there, you know, regardless of what you eat, you've got the rash. A very itchy skin condition. And what people do have to understand is that eczema is essentially a problem of your skin barrier. In other words, your skin is a little bit leaky. And the most common cause of that is in fact genetic. In other words, if there's some family member with allergies or eczema and that runs in the family. So most people think that eczema is a response to food allergies. In fact, this is incorrect and, as you say, misunderstood. Most eczema is purely a genetic skin condition. And in a few eczema sufferers, food allergies can make eczema worse if you eat the wrong foods. But that's something that a specialist like an allergy specialist has to work out. It's not worth the patient just eliminating random foods from the diet. That's the completely incorrect approach. 
And then we also see that babies who have early onset eczema before the age of six months are at much higher risk of developing food allergies. So in their case, it's the eczema causing the food allergies and not the food allergies causing the eczema, as everyone classically thinks. So eczema is a chronic condition and in the minority of cases caused by food allergies. In the majority of cases caused by a genetic tendency and then we have irritants of course like chlorine or sweating or heat or stress or being a little bit ill that flare up the eczema randomly. My name is David. I'm allergic to orange juice. I realized after a couple of times I drank it. So it was quite strange to me. Then I found out that it's the chemicals that I used in it that are causing an allergic reaction, which is fever. I usually do get fever in exchange of seasons. But this time around, every time I drink the orange juice, it's the worst kind of fever. I get cough, blocked nose, headaches, body ache, loss of breath. I sweat, my body temperature rises, and uh, my nose blocks completely, so I have to breathe with my mouth. My joints become very painful. The headache is very bad. And that kind of headache, see when you sleep with one side, let's say on the left, it goes to the other side. So even if you take a painkiller, it does not go away. You have to take an injection from the doctor. This has happened a couple of times. So when I checked it out, come to find that it's the chemicals that I use in there. Sulfur is one of the causes, as well as sugar. There's much sugar that's been used in there. It happened after three times. Third time it happened, that's when I realized, no, I need to go and check it out. But with me, it was quite strange because it's usually with people that are struggling with asthma, and I don't have asthma. And I've got somebody in the house who's got asthma, and they drink a lot of orange juice, but they don't struggle with it. So that's an interesting one. Allergies to citric acid or colorants or preservatives or stabilizers can occur. They're not as common as the public thinks, but they certainly can occur that you are sensitive to a certain preservative. And often they don't occur in the classical allergic fashion. In other words, you don't break out in hives or shortness of breath but you might have some gut irritation or a little bit of itchy skin. So it's not as dangerous as the classical allergens. Another common ailment in the food category, which is widely misunderstood and underdiagnosed, is wheat allergy. It is less common than milk, egg and peanut allergy. Wheat intolerance, however, is more common than it is a true allergy because it does not involve the immune system. Many people who do complain about wheat are mostly either wheat intolerant or may have celiac disease. Its case in South Africa is unknown and probably underdiagnosed. Gluten is very misunderstood. Gluten, you can have a true allergy to wheat and gluten where you break out in hives or rashes and of course then it needs to be eliminated. You can have something called celiac disease which occurs in about 1% of the population, where you have an immune response. Your immune system rejects the gluten and actually attacks your own gut when you've eaten gluten. And that can be tested for by blood tests and by biopsies of the gut. And that's a condition in which you absolutely have to eliminate all gluten in your diet. But the third and biggest group 
is gluten intolerance. And that really is usually just a digestive issue. In other words, people can eat a bit of wheat and gluten, but if they eat too much, they feel uncomfortable. For example, people with irritable bowel syndrome. So gluten is very misunderstood, and the majority of the population are absolutely fine with gluten or have a little bit of an intolerance. In other words, if they eat too much, they feel uncomfortable. But that's not dangerous like an allergy or a celiac disease, which occurs in only a few percent of the population. Asthma forms part of the spectrum of allergic diseases. And asthma is a reactivity of your chest. So your chest closes up in response to irritants or colds or exercise and sometimes to allergens such as grass or house dust mite. So you are quite right. Not all asthmatics have classical allergies, but many do. And asthma is in the realm of what the allergist treats. So when we take a history for is a family allergic or atopic is the nice word that you used. The questions we ask are, is there anyone with asthma? Is there anyone with eczema? Is there anyone with food allergies? And is there anyone with allergic rhinitis? So those are our main groups. And if your first degree relative, so your mother, your father or a sibling has any of those allergies, yes, the offspring has a much greater chance of developing some kind of allergic manifestation. So that's either asthma or hay fever or food allergies or eczema. So it's not one or the other. They may only present with one, they may present with a few. But if one parent has an allergic manifestation, the child will almost have a 50% chance already of developing allergies. And if both parents are allergic, then your chance is 80%. So that's how we can prognosticate and counsel families. It's a big genetic component to the disease as well as environmental. There is a rise and much talk about allergies, respiratory ailments and gut-related illnesses recently, more especially among the African people than there has been perhaps in the past 10 years. So why do we see more reports on allergies now than ever before? Dr. Gray has more on this. We certainly used to think the indigenous people, <laughs> the courts, and, and we even used to think that our indigenous black population didn't get allergies. But there's been a tremendous rise and a documented rise worldwide in allergies in the last 50 years or so. So initially the respiratory allergies like asthma and allergic rhinitis and more recently the food allergies have also increased. So that's been proven in many countries and South Africa seems to be following that same trend. It's not a weakening of the immune system, but it's probably a diversion of the immune system. The immune system does two main jobs. First of all, it deals with infection. And then secondly, it deals with autoimmunity. In other words, trying to prevent us from fighting our own bodies. Things like allergies, where essentially you're fighting in response to something that should be harmless. So what's happened over years is that we are exposed less to dirt. We are exposed less to good bacteria. Our kids are rightly so vaccinated. They don't put their hands on cow dung all day anymore. So actually we're seeing less and less good healthy bacteria that we come into contact with. And our immune systems aren't maturing like they used to in response to this. Our diets have changed. So we're having less healthy, fresh, antioxidant-rich foods. We're having more rubbish, processed, fast foods. And that's also contributing to our immune system being a little bit confused. With that being said, 
post-orgasmic illness syndrome is a rare and chronic disorder among men that manifests as a flu-like and allergic symptom following ejaculation. Studies show that POIS is more common in women, affecting up to 40,000 women in the United States, but has also been diagnosed in men. That's extremely rare. I mean, that's not what the allergists usually see. You can just be allergic to some of the components in your partner's semen. And interestingly, they have found what we call a cross-reaction. So sometimes some allergens look similar to other allergens. And they found a cross-reaction between the semen proteins and the proteins from dogs. So some people with a dog allergy are more prone to develop a semen allergy, for example, because the body confuses the two proteins and they can look a little bit similar. That was Bridget LePere with our story on allergies. Now, who would have thought that there's so many people living with allergies out there? I mean, Bridget, before this, did you know this much about allergies? Definitely not. But I've had encounters with people who had really, really hectic um, reactions to allergies. Like somebody who was allergic to milk and nuts and they choked up. So, yeah. And other strange allergies were also highlighted in that story. But <laughs> stay listening. Next up, we have Unscience. You're listening to The Science Inside, bringing you science around major news events. It is time for Unscience, where we look at the strangest side of science. It is where we look at the weird and wonderful side of what scientists spend a lot of their time, effort and money on. Today's Unscience was produced by Harmony Mulefe. This comes from the University of California and the music is from Free Royalty, Free Music and Sound Bible. Unusual. Unlikely. Unscience. Welcome to the wackiest, funniest and sometimes the most weirdest part of the show. Today... Well, we are looking at how to unboil an egg. Can you believe it? People are looking at how to unboil an egg, Lebo. Oh, my goodness. That is quite strange. Have you ever felt like eating an egg and then you just don't feel like eating it anymore? Yes, it does happen at times. Well, this might work for you. Scientists at the University of California have come up with a way to unboil eggs. Huh? Yep, that is impressive. But how do they do this? They have developed a practical experiment for pulling apart tangled proteins and allowing them to refold. As eggs are boiled at approximately 90 degrees Celsius, uh, about 20, for about 20 minutes, key proteins in eggs are broken down and are allowed to reform. The model will allow these proteins to be cooked, to cook the white eggs and be pulled apart and thus re-render them back into their original shapes. To do this, a urea, a urea substance is added to the egg and the substance will qualify the solid parts of eggs that is not all as the protein bits would still be built up in masses. Now, Bridget, I want you to tell me more about this. Okay. A vortex fluid 
device is then used. This is a high-powered machine with shear forces that force the protein pieces back to their untangled original forms. Now, that is an eye-opener, but what does this practical work mean? The problem here is that there are a lot of um, cases of proteins that take up time to scrape off from the solid surface so that the material can be recovered and this can render the procedure inefficient. But even so, the experiment can be favored as it only takes a few minutes and looking at the materials used, it can be inexpensive. And does this experiment only work on reforming proteins in eggs? Nope. The same experiment has been proven to transform the industrial and research production of proteins. This is because the ability to quickly reform proteins could support protein manufacturing, leading to the production of foods such as cheese, which usually requires a lot of protein breakage and reforming a lot quicker. Okay, now one would ask themselves, why would you want to save eggs like that? Well, as hard as it is to believe, not everyone always has food to eat. Some are poverty-stricken and they wouldn't want to waste their, uh, any more of their food. And for the manufacturers, this is an innovation for reducing the costs of food production because they will not be in demand of eggs that can lead them to genetically modifying their chicks in order to produce eggs quickly for supplying to their consumers. So, next time you feel like throwing away an egg because you no longer want it, think twice. Wow, that is unscience for you. It's unusual, unlikely, unscience. Next up, we have Spepile Nguba, a PhD student at the, at the Witz University from the School of Physics. Unusual, unlikely, unscience. Stay curious, stay informed, stay on the science inside. Welcome back. You're still listening to the science inside, and we are here with our scientists behind the science, Dr. Pepile Nube. How are you doing tonight? I'm fine. Good evening, level. Good evening. Our scientist behind the science, Dr. Spepile Ngube, has just completed her PhD at the University of the Witwatersrand and has already become the first researcher in Africa to build an electronic device that can measure an electron transfer of prop- electron transfer properties of the carbon nanotubes coupled with magnetic nanoparticles. She began her research on carbon nanotubes in 2011 and made single-walled carbon tubes by establishing a laser synthesis technique. She worked with a team of researchers from WITS, University of Johannesburg, and Paul Sebastian University in France. And now they have found ways to control the spin transport in networks of the smallest electrical conductor known to man. Through her work, the potential of carbon nanotubes for ultra-fast switching devices and magnetic memory applications has been established now firstly for all our listeners out there dr Ngube, what are na- carbon nanotubes thank you for that awesome introduction level so the material known as carbon nanotubes 
uh, actually allotropes of carbon, you know, the six elements in the periodic table. They do not form naturally, like diamond and graphite and coal. They have to be made synthetically using different methods. They're very small, infinitely small. You can't see them with your naked eye. You need to use a very powerful microscope, not even an optical microscope. Wow. You have to use an electron microscope to see them. If you do see, if you, what you're holding and you're saying these are nanotubes, you're actually seeing them, that means you're the met of nanotubes. For singular tubes, you need to use these powerful techniques to see them. So they possess uh, a lot of interesting properties. The most interesting is that they can carry large amounts of current, electrical current, compared to the conventional uh, current um, conductors that are used in the semiconducting industry. And they're very strong and they can survive in a lot of environments. So oh. they're flexible materials, strong materials with exceptional properties. Wow, so these tiny little tubes transport electrons at a high speed and they're very useful. So now, according to your research, you found ways to control the spin transports in network of carbon nanotubes. So does this mean that you can actually control the current these nanotubes carry? If so, how? Okay, this means that, well, it's widely known that they are good electron charge transfer. This material is good for electron charge transfer. But even with that knowledge, it can still be improved. So by coupling it with a magnetic nanoparticle, we've ensured that you are transferring electrons at very high speeds and extending the functionality of the material by using the spin. Spin is a magnetic property of the material. So when you introduce these magnetic nanoparticles into the, the nanotubes, that means you already have electrons that are moving fast, but now you are improving the way they are moving by introducing a magnet. A magnet has a property, it's called, uh, an electron has only charge property, but a magnet has a spin property, which is an additional degree of freedom. So that is how it has been improved and it's now controlling the electronic, its presence is controlling the electronic transport of the nanotubes. Okay, so through the presence of the magnetic properties, then you control basically the electron transfer. Yes, now you're able to predict how your electron transfer is moving in the material because you have a magnet present there. Wow, so it's fast, mm -hmm. firstly, and you can actually control it. And it's, it's an added functionality. There's a third degree of freedom, which is the spin. Oh, okay. Yeah. So while uh, conducting this research, what were the challenges that you and your team encountered? Okay, it was a really long road. Long road, I can't lie about that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, this is sounding very, very detailed. Like you have to look at small intricacies. Yes, we knew exactly what we wanted to do, but we needed the expertise of chemists to help us. Our lab is mainly a physics lab. So we had to work hand in hand with chemists locally and internationally to actually tailor the properties of this material from, I told you, you make them synthetically. So it's making the nanotubes is something I must start while I was doing my MSc. I knew how to make the nanotubes. Oh wow, while you were still studying? Yes. Okay, that's uh, impressive. Uh, that's what I did uh, during the masters. I oh. made nanotubes and just characterized their electronic transport. So I had a good pro uh, background on the electronic transport, but I knew that they can be modified to make them better. 
mortification wasn't something that came easy. You have to understand the chemistry. So this tailoring of the magnetic nanoparticles onto the nanotubes was very challenging, but we eventually got it done with the help of experts from chemistry. And then the actual making of this device was also a big challenge because now you need to know how exactly to put the nanotube, the electrodes, sensitivity of the instruments, all those things were challenging, but they were refined with time and we got good results eventually. Wow. I'm just trying to imagine all this work with a big group, but you're just working with very, very small things, like uh, carbon nanotubes are very small. Oh, yeah, yeah. That's one of the biggest challenges about carbon nanotubes. They are really small. You have to use the electron microscope, otherwise you're working in the dark. Oh, definitely. <laughs> <laughs> now, when carbon nanotubes were first discovered in Japan in 1993, it was thought that they'd actually replace the silicone in electric circuits and things like microchips and computer hard drives. Do you think that this could be the next step forward now since you've had this breakthrough in your research? Well, I think at this point, my research, along with other recent breakthroughs in the field, are streamlining the CNTs into the integration into functional electronic devices. IBM is considering the material for flexible electronics. We should be the next step in electronics. You can see your devices are becoming thinner and thinner. Mm. You know where that is going. It's going into printable electronics. Where What the electronics industry is working towards is having all these devices printed on electronic paper so that you can wear your cell phone, you can wear your computer. Also, oh, these that. futuristic movies where we see them basically pull out a, a screen and then it's just in yes. the air, sort of. Yes. That's what we're moving towards. That is what we're moving towards. That is what the kind of uh, results that I presented in this article is moving towards. We're contributing towards that. Oh, wow. So you're bringing sci-fi movies and all these fancy yeah. movies to life, it's basically. It's no longer sci-fi, it's reality. Yes. This is the age that we live in. Wow, that is very interesting. So during your research, you mentioned that you used a technique known as the spin valve effect, right? Which is used in the development of hard drives and data storage. Now, as a student, I have a hard drive where I put a lot of my information and these tend to crash a lot. So what does this carbon nanotube do? Like, does it improve it? Will it crash a lot less or will it just be faster? Do you know why it's crashing? Why is it crashing? Because the ma material that is being used is reaching its limit. Okay. Uh, this is why we have our devices overheating. Oh. Because the material, they're trying to make it faster. The silicone is overheating. Yes, it's reaching its limit. Because oh, wow. when you, you're trying to make it faster, you have to pack in a lot of transistors into the device to make it faster, to make it perform faster. Okay. Then it tends to overheat. Now, the advantage that these nanotubes, nanomaterials bring in is that they're very small. So whether you're packing a million of them, you still contain the heat within your device. Oh. So, okay, to answer your question, yes, there will be... You have more space. You have more space. It works better yes. and it has a less chance of crashing, basically. Yeah. Okay, I'm really looking forward to your research coming to life, hitting the shelves soon, because I'm really tired of, one, my phone overheating, and two, losing my memory in hard drives that I bought for like 800 rand or more. It's yes. really just a waste. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so 
This is a question we like to bring to all our scientists. Um, what would you like our listeners, just a normal person out there who doesn't know anything about physics, to know about uh, your field of study and your research? My research is mainly nanoelectronics. And from where I'm standing, from what I've seen, from what I've experienced, I think nano, actually no, nanotechnology is most likely the way forward for technology. FMR scientists once said there's so much room at the bottom, which basically means these super tiny materials perform far much better than the conventional microscopic materials. So that is what it means. There's so much room at the bottom. They are super small, but they deliver so much better results compared to the conventional materials. The nanomaterials, yes, that is. That is the nanomaterials. So what we are looking to advance uh, in technology a simple example is looking at the mobile phones. Every new generation of a phone is coming with uh, what improved functionalities. They are slimming down everything. That is the advent of nanotechnology. So I do believe it is the future of technology. That's the only way we can keep up with the speeds that we require. And our Wi-Fi's and things will also be improved the speed of wi-fi and stuff yes, like that it's all about speed mm. it's all about it seems as time goes we just want more speed yes That's definitely we want to go faster every time i don't know if we can keep up with the speed that we want but that is what we want for processing big companies yes they have huge data to process yes they can use that speed ordinary people will have to see it would come in handy because sometimes Wi-Fi is a bit slow and you're really just trying to get something. Yes, 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 yes. Um, I think it will be great to have all the speed. So when you look at it, how long will it take until this technology is brought into the industry as a solid form of technology for everything? When will it be integrated rather into our world? It is slowly being integrated into the world. I mean, they are tweaking there are devices that are being introduced that have these nanomaterials, these carbon nanotubes, and there's another form of carbon called graphene as well. They are using it. Of course, they still have to scale it to typical performances, but they are being introduced. And with time and with such results, which, are, which we are getting, the confidence levels are quite high that soon... They were saying 2020, I don't know if we'll reach that. Wow, that's quite soon, actually. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so now that we've done all that science-y stuff, what do you do when you're not working on science? Mm, for the past couple of years, I've been a lab rat. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, that has been my life. For the past couple of years, I am slowly reintegrating myself into society after the PhD. Okay. That is a very interesting way to describe your life, a lab rat. So, tests being run on you, mm. is that what you mean? No, no, no. I mean spending so much time in the lab, oh. trying to make things work. So, science has been your life for a very long time. Yeah, I only realized it now, actually. <laughs> I mean, you're coming out with these great things, so it's worth it at the end of the day. But also, what brought you into science? What made you fall in love with science, physics? Curiosity. I was always a curious person. And yeah, talking about the sci-fi movies, I always wondered, is this really possible? <laughs> How does someone think of that? Where does this come from? You can't just think up of something that doesn't exist. Yeah. 
honestly and you're actually bringing it to life now you're bringing it all to us from being curious about it to making it happen yeah it's actually very interesting when you do get the results eventually it makes sense (laughs) so if you have a young child somewhere listening to you what would you like them to know about venturing into science how would you encourage them or guide them well um as a child i think one thing that i was encouraged myself as a child is that every question is relevant there's nothing like a stupid question definitely yeah so if you're curious about something do ask do inquire it you don't just think up of uh, nonsensical things there's something behind that thought so you have to find out what it is Mm. that's very true thank you so much it was lovely having you on our show that was Dr. Pepile Ngube on the scientists behind the science thank you for having me you're listening to the science inside bringing you science around major news events Welcome back to the Science Inside and unfortunately this draws us to the end of the show but we have touched base on very interesting things like allergies, things that we don't really pay attention to. Bridget, we've learned so much about allergies today. Yeah, and um, I hope our listeners took something away from um, the story that I I did Um, and it opened my eyes really as to you know, the dangers out there uh, when we prepare foods and we ought to really be careful. And even um, as we spoke to the lady from um, the Allergy Foundation, Dr. Gray, they're also running, they're actually running a program now where they're rolling out the allergy policy so that that policy will inform um, educators to actually you know, take precautionary measures in schools. This program has been rolled out in the Western Cape and it's due to be rolled out in Gauteng and the rest of the other provinces. So this will be helpful in cases where, well, actually extreme cases where people are are suffering an anaphylactic um, attack and an educator can actually step in and save a child's life. Oh, wow. That is a very important point to bring up as well. And on a lighter note, we were also looking at how to unboil an egg. And that's all for the Science Inside. Thanks to all our guests featured on the show, including Dr. Claudia Gray, Dr. Pepe Lengube, not forgetting, of course, our team behind the scenes in production, Bridget Lipiri, Harmony Malefe, and Glory Mabuza, and the tech team by Kutlano Sirame. And you can catch us on our podcast at vids.journalism.co.za forward slash science and on our social media at Facebook at Science Inside. And you can tweet us at VowFM. I am Lebohang Madisha and... I'm Bridget Libere. And the Science Inside is produced by the Vits Radio Academy, funded by part by... Part by in, the South African Department of Science and Technology. The Science Inside, Monday from 6 to 7 p.m. on OSN 88.1.
The Science Inside Podcast.